Hey, hey, everybody. If you're listening to this, you are listening to the first free hour of this episode of The Shift with Doug McKinty. If you like what you're hearing, please consider subscribing to the show in order to access the full feature-length versions of the podcast, as well as have access to the members' forum, where we discuss potential topics and interviews and dive deep into the overall concept of The Shift. For only six bucks a month, not only do you get the full-length episodes, but also an opportunity to co-create with me, your host, Doug McKinty, the future of the show. Go to www.theshiftnow.com or patreon.com backslash the shift and sign up today in order to help make the shift possible. Thanks for listening and enjoy the show. Good morning, noon, or night, wherever and whenever you are listening, you are listening to The Shift. I'm your host. My name is Doug McKenty. This episode was recorded on February 9th, 2022. I'm happy to announce my guest on the program today is libertarian author and activist Elliot Axelman. Elliot is the main author and editor at LibertyBlock.com and is the author of multiple books, including The Blueprint for Liberty and most recently Corona Fascism. He is active in the free state movement in New Hampshire, most notably for his advocacy of secession from the United States as the best option for citizens concerned about federal government overreach. Within the pages of Blueprint, Elliot provides a concise argument not only for the application of the principles of liberty in general, but why he feels separation from the Union to be the best path forward for those interested in living lives based on personal choice rather than engaging in political wrangling with those dedicated to imposing political systems conceived on the federal level. The book covers a variety of topics including education, healthcare, racism, the growing surveillance state, and more, while pointing out how centralized state control makes these problems worse, not better. Perhaps most importantly, Elliot points out how government funding corrupts state and local governments, essentially neutering their ability to make independent decisions at the local level. He also provides clear and concise arguments making the case for a free society characterized by voluntary interaction with a decentralized structure that takes power away from those at the top of the political hierarchy. While his position on secession is certainly controversial, the book includes how and why he ultimately came to the conclusion that a full separation from the federal bureaucracy is the only path forward. It includes arguments against the possibility that voting for liberty will ever create the changes necessary to disassemble the federal power structure, and even points out how weaknesses in the federal constitution are responsible for the current power structure. He explains in detail why the constitutionalist arguments to remain in the Union will only fall short of the ultimate goal of decentralization. The Blueprint for Liberty concludes with an alternative vision espousing competing currencies, free market-based infrastructure, education, and healthcare solutions, and even a completely decentralized police and military apparatus. Stay tuned for this conversation, which will tackle this controversial perspective by explaining just how such an alternative system could work. After the last two years of lockdowns and mandates, many of us are starting to wonder if centralized power really works for the benefit of the common person. This interview provides a perspective that could offer a path forward by empowering individuals, communities, and state governments with the ability to discover solutions to future crises more amenable to the needs of local communities. Find out more about the work of Elliot Axelman by going to www.libertyblock.com. 
For more information about The Shift, find hours of free content, sign up to the newsletter, or subscribe for feature-length versions of the podcast, go to www.theshiftnow.com. Find my personal musings at the Populist Papers blog on Substack. Become part of the conversation at Doug McKenty on Facebook, at McKenty on Twitter. And find the show on Rockfin, Odyssey, YouTube, or your favorite podcast hosting site. If you like what you're hearing, please share this content as we rely on listeners like you to distribute this alternative information. Enjoy this discussion with libertarian activist and author Elliot Axelman. I want to thank him for agreeing to this interview, and thank you for helping to make the shift. Hey, everybody, and welcome. This is the 108th episode of The Shift. I'm joined today by author Elliot Axelman. He is the author of The Blueprint for Liberty and Corona Fascism. And uh, as many of you know, I've actually been getting more and more into the groove of promoting my own libertarianism perspective. Uh, I do a lot of work trying to blend or figure out how to compromise the left and the right paradigm. And lately, uh, you know, I've ultimately just come to the conclusion that I don't see a conflict between libertarianism and progressivism really at the end of the day in terms of if you think about these things as lifestyle choices, people wanting to live collectively or organize uh, in workers cooperatives or, you know, whatever kind of currency system you want to use or even private property rights uh, kind of system that you want to use in terms of voluntary organization. I don't see libertarianism as having an issue with that. Uh, and more and more, especially with the onset of the coronavirus mandates and such, uh, the progressives have been just pushing really hard on how uh, we are allowed to live our lives and the choices that we're allowed to make. And I'm seeing something that's really been disturbing for me over the last couple of years is seeing a lot of my progressive friends really tossing concepts like individual rights out the window, um, almost completely eliminating the boundary between state and the individual and a lot of messaging coming across saying that, you know, if you believe in individual rights, then you must be selfish or you don't care about other people. Um, I've even heard things like China is a we culture and we're this me culture here in the United States. And it's so selfish. Uh, and it's just become very worrying because I think if you really eliminate the idea of individual liberty and you eliminate the boundary between state states, uh, state power and individual rights, then what are you left with? I mean, all kinds of exploitation, uh, all kinds of, I mean, horrendous, we've seen it throughout history. So I wanted to have Elliot on and do a deep dive into his own libertarianism. He's been involved in uh, the secessionist movement, actually, in New Hampshire. And we'll talk about that as well. But uh, Elliot, thanks for coming on the show. You want to just give people a little bit of your background and, and uh, a little bit about your own personal relationship with libertarianism? Sure. Thank you very much for having me. So my name is Elliot Axelman. I, I go by Alu as well, my nickname. I moved to New Hampshire in 2017 from New York City. I always say that Mayor de Blasio and Governor Dictator Cuomo radicalized me, and they were the ones who made me realize I'm more libertarian and eventually voluntarist. Um, I, I wasn't that into politics, didn't really follow it before I was uh, living in New York for a while, before I was an adult. Um, I've become more libertarian and eventually voluntarist or anarcho-capitalist, meaning I don't believe in any government force, not a little bit of taxation or theft or coercion or punishing people for no reason or bombing every country in the world. I believe in zero. So I think there should be zero government coercion or, or theft or violating innocent people. And I believe in property rights, absolutism. So I think people own their houses and their 
bodies and person and property, ultimately, not just the majority of it. I think the government should have zero control over people. Um, I also have come to realize that it is impossible to save the union and save D.C. and the federal government in every state. For, for those who believe in, in liberty or full voluntarism or even small government like conservatives, they've been trying for 240 years to minimize the federal government and save the union, bring the federal government back to its constitutional role, which it's outgrown by, by around 30 trillion fold. And they keep failing. And every two years, they say, we just need to vote a little harder and vote for better people in Congress. We made a mistake two years ago, but in two years, we'll fix it. We'll elect Mr. Smith for Congress and he'll fix the whole world. And every two years, it doesn't get better, it gets worse. So if the definition of insanity is doing the same thing every day for 240 years and expecting things to change, then everyone who believes that we can save the union and just elect one more good person to Congress this year in 2022, we'll fix that. We'll get the House and send it back and we'll start fixing the world. That's what Republicans tell me. Um, it's the definition of insanity. So I wrote the Blueprint for Liberty to explain what, what I realized, which is we're not going to save the country. We're not going to save the union because there are two massive issues. And, and the trend, if you look at the trends, every single day, the United States, the federal government, and almost every single state besides New Hampshire is becoming more authoritarian, not less. So if you look at the trend, and in the book, I have a lot of graphs that shows the amount of taxation, gun control, violations of privacy, violations of due process, every single bad authoritarian thing is going up in the graph. And if you, I have some graphs with personal liberties, like overall gun rights and overall personal liberties and privacy, individual rights, they're all going down every single day for 240 years, with very, very few exceptions. So if you look at the trends, there's there's no reason to believe that things will change tomorrow if your friend is elected to Congress, because I have friends here running for Congress and they think they're going to save the world. If you look at the trends, there, there's no realistic feasible reason to believe that we're going to save the country. And I think there are two kind of distinct issues for why New Hampshire needs to secede from the union and be independent if we want to preserve any freedom and privacy and due process for the next generation. Number one, DC politicians are increasingly abusing us. And I list tons of those reasons in the books and in many of my articles. And the other reason is the union is not united. All 50 states are very unique. Almost every single state supports increasing levels of authoritarianism in every single way. If you look at just forget federal law, we know federal law gets worse every day. Look at state laws, look at policies within cities and states. Besides New Hampshire, almost every single state has been increasingly trending towards authoritarian communism, China-style communism, for the most part, every day for the last 240 years. So, and and we're di have diverging lifestyles and ideology. California is a different ideology than New Hampshire, which is different than Kansas, and different than Wyoming and Texas and Florida and New Jersey. They're just different places. And the state, as I always say, is a synonym with, with country. I happen to live in other countries, so I know that state and country are synonymous, but most Americans don't learn that in their government schools. So we have diverging, increasingly diverging ideologies within all the different states. So eventually we're going to have to either be forced to be one collective horrible hive mind, or we're going to have to become an independent nation, New Hampshire, so that we can actually have and live by our own ideology. Yeah, it's pretty interesting. Maybe you could explain uh, for listeners that don't know about New Hampshire. I was just talking a little bit before the show that uh, I come from Texas. And because we were actually our own nation state in Texas prior to joining the union, there's always been a little bit of a secessionist movement. It does seem like in the last maybe 20 years, New Hampshire's kind of taken over uh, in terms of, of the, these feelings of independence, of decentralization of power away from the nation state. Uh, and it's become a little bit of a libertarian haven. Um, what's been going on in New Hampshire that's kind of been, you know, sl slowly over the over these last few decades, uh, pushing New Hampshire in that direction? 
I agree that New Hampshire is the freest state. If you look at the metrics, and according to Cato, Freedom in 50 States, I believe the Fraser Institute, and according to the Liberty Block, which is me, by all of our metrics that we consider the most important, New Hampshire is the number one free estate. So I have an article on libertyblock.com explaining why, if you look at all the biggest issues, which is overall taxes, economic freedom, gun rights, personal liberty, education freedom, all the biggest ones, we are the number one free estate. But more importantly, like you said, we're trending in the right direction. The other 49 states are trending towards authoritarian communism. New Hampshire, over the last 10 years or 15 years, is trending towards liberty. Now, I would concede that, that Texas still probably has us beat in the spirit of independence and state patriotism. I spent a little bit of time in Texas. In Texas, I see a lot more Texas flags than I see New Hampshire flags in New Hampshire. Mm-hmm. Um, I, there, there probably is a little bit more awareness and probably more support, to be honest, for secession in Texas still. Um, you mentioned that you were your own republic maybe 150 years ago or 100 years ago. Um, New Hampshire was as well before 1776. So, sure. so before 1789, when the Constitution was ratified, for a few years, probably between 1777 and 1789, for around 12 years, New Hampshire was a republic. We had a president. We had, you know, a, a state government, a national government, um, and we had our own constitution long before the U.S. Constitution was written and ratified. So we were our own country with a president. We were doing just fine before we joined the union. Texas, obviously, more recently, up and up until like uh, maybe 150 years ago, was its own country. But again, every state was until they joined the union. Every state, the 13 colonies were independent. The other states before we annexed them, I think, were pretty independent. So every state has survived without the union, and we can. And people forget that the states created the federal government, not the other way around. So we created the federal government just to help with interstate disputes and to help um, maybe with national borders and the military. That's all. All the other important daily life issues should be up to the states, but the federal government has usurped those powers. As far as the last part of your question of liberty, New Hampshire, it is the freest state, and it's gotten more free. It's hard to say exactly how much of an impact the Free State Project has had, and that's a project of kind of a movement of people who love liberty, who were sick of losing. I was in New Jersey and New York, two of the least free places on earth, and I was sick of losing, and I I moved here largely because of the Free State Project in the end of 2017. And the the FSP is just a movement of people, and it's a very, very broad movement. It's It's just all the people in the United States who are sick of losing in California and New Jersey and everywhere else. And even we do have some movers from Texas and even Florida, which is which is a pretty good state comparatively. Mm-hmm. But people sick of losing want to come and, and, and I guess, improve our power with uh, synergy and improve our influence through concentration. Instead of having a few million libertarians losing battles in every state, we can have a few thousand all come here and we can actually get some wins. So over 40, 50 free state project um, movers or movers who moved because of, of freedom have been elected to our state house over the years. We currently have 20 or 30 or 40 in the state house. And just a lot of activists. So a lot of the best activists, if you look at the 500 most active, effective liberty activists in the state, probably around half of them are free staters. And so that has helped a lot as well. But over the last 10 years, especially, we have increasingly been moving towards liberty. So the trend towards liberty, abolishing the permits for concealed carry. We now have no no gun restrictions or permits or anything. So we are the number one free state as far as gun rights. Um, finally, passing education freedom accounts, which is a kind of voucher program getting rid of taxes, getting rid of so many laws and improving privacy, improving economic freedom. We still have no minimum wage. We're one of the few states with zero minimum wage in our state, so it goes to the federal. So all these things, we've been increasing. I mean, cut taxes and eliminated some taxes fully, but we cut every tax last year in the budget as well. So every year I look at the trend and consistently we're becoming more pro-freedom, whereas most other states are going in the wrong direction. So mm-hmm. we are the freest, but even more important than being number one, is the trend that we're moving towards more freedom. So we're the only state where in five years we'll be more free than we are now. Most states are getting less free. 
Yeah, I got to tell you, uh, I'm looking into moving actually from California here in the next couple of weeks, and the U-Haul prices are out of control. So, so <laughs> it I've appears, heard that there's, there are more going one way than the other way. Yep. It appears that way. I mean, the, the law of supply and demand would dictate that, my God, these guys can charge an arm and a leg because, uh, yeah, it seems like people are, are uh, really heading out of here, and um, I don't actually blame them. It's been pretty amazing. I've lived here for the last of 15 plus years and things just keep getting worse and worse i mean the homeless problem is is horrible the cost of living is through the roof um you know people are really having a hard time making it now we're seeing it in san francisco and los angeles um and so something's gotta something's gotta give here um and it's good to see that new hampshire's uh going in the other direction i honestly think that if we can what i've been trying to promote is just people getting behind this idea of decentralizing power. I mean, I really think if we can get more power to the states and then more power to the city governments, then we can actually see, I mean, this is the old idea of federalism. We can see which, you know, which cities are doing what and, and what's working and what's not working. And, and it would just make such a huge difference. Um, yeah, I mean, what do you think about that just in terms of, you know, trying to get power out of the states, maybe, um, or out of the out of the federal government, out of the state government, more into the local government, and then, um, you know, especially in terms. I know you brought up in the book the funding because it seems like this is such a huge issue. Like, I you can you can go to your, uh, you know, I go to the local county board meetings and whatever. They're getting state funds. The state's getting funds from the feds, and we really, as much as we can, try to make change in our localities, like their hands are tied because there's so much strings attached to the money. Exactly. At the hearing for this bill, we have a bill in New Hampshire that would put independence on the ballot if it passes the House and Senate. And at the hearing, chairman of the state federal relations committee in the House and a lot of others said they support independence. They support the bill. They would love to secede. But we're so intertwined. We're so attached and reliant on the federal government for the money they send us that we can't because we take their money. And that's why we have to follow their laws. And we take the money. So we're kind of hooked on it. And I agree. And um, he, you know, he said this as if it was kind of a surprise. And and a few people on the committee, the representatives, made it seem like I'm just some stupid, uneducated cowboy with no plan who hasn't thought of this. I've been writing about the issue with federal grants and federal money for years since I was a baby in 2017. I was talking about it on the radio on AM radio back before I moved here, and I was I've been writing about it in articles and books. Pretty much, the federal government takes our money from federal income taxes, federal corporate taxes, and other federal taxes. And they give it to states and localities and, and you know, counties, cities, states, and even private companies in order to abuse us. So you, you kind of hinted at nullification. And a lot of people say, Alu, you're pretty radical. Secession is not necessary yet. Let's just nullify federal laws. And I agree with them. I, I love nullification, obviously, but not exactly for the reason they might think. I love nullification for its own sake, but also because I, I understand that with the way the funding mechanism works and the way the, the process would work nullification of federal laws. So it's the state nullifying federal laws like California and some other states have done with cannabis law and immigration law. And some conservative states have done now with, with federal gun laws. So that's when a state nullifies federal laws. It's great because eventually it is the first step to secession. So while it is great for its own sake, I love nullification. When a state nullifies laws, for instance, a conservative state nullifies federal gun laws. And if we continue pushing and nullify some federal taxes or other laws, the next, that's the first step. The second step is the federal government is going to cut funding because the federal government steals our money. They take around 30, 40, 50% of our, our income every year. They send back a lot of money to states. The average state might get around half of its, its state 
government budget from the federal government in New Hampshire, our $6 billion budget, around $3 billion, roughly half, comes from the federal government. So they steal it, they give it back, but they only give it back if we listen to them. And if we keep nullifying, they're going to get upset and they can withhold those funds. For instance, they give a few billion dollars every year, the federal HHS, the state HHS for health and human services. They give their federal DOT to state DOTs. They give the federal DHS to state um, DHS or state lo um, and local police. So they do this. They can cut those funds at any time because they're giving us money. People think it's free money. They steal it from us. They give it back with extortion. It's like if I stole money from you and I gave back 80% of it and only if you do what I want you to do. So if you stop doing what I want you to do, I'll stop giving you the money. Then what, what do you say? You'd say, okay, if you're going to steal my money and extort me, I am not going to give it to you in the first place. So that's the second step is they cut funding. The third step is if they're not if they're going to steal our money and not give it back because we're not behaving like good little boys, the third step is we stop giving them taxes in the first place. And one state, whoever, whichever governor or state legislature or the people in the state have the backbone to not pay federal taxes if we're going to steal our money and extort us, then we have a state that no longer pays federal taxes or obeys federal laws. That is de facto secession. So nullification is the necessary first step towards secession. That's why I love it, because people may not realize they think it's not radical. They think nullification is just nullification. Yes, but also it is the first step inevitably in secession. So that's why I love nullification, and I'm totally supporting nullification movements in every state, including New Hampshire. What was kind of, I guess, the, the straw that breaks the camel's back? Because a lot of, uh, of quote-unquote conservatives, Republicans, uh, they'll be constitutionalists, and they'll say, hey— you know, if we can just get back to working with the Constitution, within the frameworks of the Constitution, everything will be great. But you're going full on like, this is ridiculous. This isn't working. Well, let's just leave. We can do a better job on our own. Um, what was it that kind of got you to take that extra step, you know? Well, when I read Lysander Spooner, who wrote like 200 years ago, a yeah. little booklet called uh, No Treason, the Constitution of No Authority, he explains, I used to be a constitutionalist, but then I read that and I realized the constitution should not have any authority. And he lists a lot of really good reasons, including it was written like 245 years ago by my theoretical ancestors. If I, if I lived here my whole life, you know, my ancestors, um, and only a few people signed it, not even the majority of the people there, only a few delegates from a few states signed it, but and they say it's a contract at best. And you can't sign a contract binding your descendants and perpetuity to other people's descendants because they're royalty forever. Uh, all, all universal contract law throughout the entire universe and all worlds in existence agrees, contract law, that you can't bind your own child, let alone your grandchild and your descendants for posterity for, for uh, eternity to other, other descendants of royalty because they're in Congress. So the, that whole theory doesn't make sense. But you, even if it were a contract, the, the other big universal tenet of contract law throughout the entire universe is if one party willfully and maliciously violates the contract repeatedly, and shows no uh, availability, no sign of recourse, no way to fix it to remedy the contract violation. The other party can totally void the contract and leave. Right? That, that's the the most number one foundational law of all contract law in this universe. So, has the federal government violated the Constitution? Yes, they violated nearly every part of the Bill of Rights many, many times. So, even if it were a contract, we can sever ties and walk away without it being a contract violation. If it were a contract, at best, and that's the, that's their best argument. It's, it's a horrific argument. So people say, we need to get back to the Constitution. And I hear a conservative constitutionalist saying this. They say, we just need to obey the Constitution. Yes, we all know. But how? How do you force Biden and Pelosi and Schumer to obey the Constitution? And, and they have no answer. They say, let's just tell them to obey it. OK, we've told them. Ted Cruz has told Pelosi to obey the Constitution. She tells him to go get, go get screwed. 
they're never going to do it. You know, people say we need to follow the constitution. They have, they have nothing else, no uh, real method for how to actually do that. And, and the worst, biggest fatal flaw of all the flaws in the constitution is it has no punishments. The politicians who violate it don't get punished. So for laws for us, we have punishments when we violate the federal law, but the laws that restrict politicians conveniently don't punish the politicians. They don't punish themselves. The government doesn't, when it created the government, it didn't create punishments for the government for violating the government's laws. So they can violate the second amendment, which they've done millions of times now federally and on state levels. They violate the first amendment. I'm working on a book. I'm going to submit to my publisher or I'm going to self-publish it in a few weeks. Um, it's called presumed guilty all about how the federal government violates due process in, in pretty much every area of law. So almost every area of law, we have little to no due process and almost every violation comes from DC. So they violate the fourth and fifth amendments and sixth and eighth and ninth and 10th. So they violate the constitution. So at best, if it's a contract, we can void the contract because they've been violating it for 240 years. Yeah, it's pretty crazy. I mean, that was the thing for me about the coronavirus mandates, uh, when they really came came down hard, just calling a state of emergency, which basically just absolved the the democracy and the democratic process altogether, uh, and then just um, began the process of eliminating the uh, the Bill of Rights. I mean, you know, no no right of assembly, uh, not even the right to worship. I, I was really surprised when the Christian communities didn't rise up uh, a little bit more against that when they were told they couldn't go to church. Um, and so it's just, again, I mean, this is why I'm kind of doing more work to promote this point of view now, because I, I just couldn't believe that the majority of Americans were willing to endure this kind of authoritarianism without even asking to have a conversation about it. I mean, there was no conversation on any news station anywhere about eliminating the right of assembly. So we couldn't get even get together to protest what was going on. Um and I don't, I, I mean, you know, maybe a question for you about this is why do you think that what's happened within American culture that, that people don't respect individual rights anymore? I mean, we're not even having these conversations. It's as if um, most people haven't been able to make that ethical connection that if we don't have these boundaries against government power, then we have an authoritarian system. I mean, you know, we've been living basically under an authoritarian system for the last two years, and it's like nobody's raised a peep about it. That's what's been, it's just been shocking to me, actually. Just, just amazing that the average American no longer feels, uh, you, you know, some kind of pride or respect for the history uh, of individual liberty that um, you know, was the foundation of this nation state early on and a big part of its history for such a long period of time. I think a lot of people have woken up and, and risen up and protested against the increase in Corona fascism. I, I think over the last two years, Corona fascism policies have angered a lot of people and woken people up. So there are a few million, but like you said, the majority of people, whether it's 70 or 80 or 95 or 99% of people in the United States don't want liberty. They don't prioritize liberty above all. They they prioritize maybe safety and security and being taken care of or feel like they're being taken care of by mommy and daddy government. Um, or they, they believe in equality. So if they value equality or safety and security or, or health over liberty, then you know they wouldn't have an issue with this. And one of the realizations that I had maybe uh, two, three years ago is I realized not everyone in the United States wants what we want, which is liberty above all. Some don't prioritize liberty as the number one priorities. For some, it might be two or three or 10 or not a priority at all because they believe in equality. Everyone should have the exact same amount of money and that's essentially communism. And some believe in, in uh, health, 
So overall, I want you to be healthy. The government should make sure we're all healthy. I've written a few articles about that because I've been in medicine for 10 years. So I'm, I'm you know, interested in health policy and some believe in uh, safety and security. So I think, um, you know, my, my dad, who has some background in, in, as a therapist, says people generally want to be taken care of. Um, the typical human being wants to be taken care of and wants safety and security above all. If you look at the, um, I think, the psych psychological hierarchy of needs, according to um, the, the founding fathers of psychology in modern day theory, I think it was Maslow who mm -hmm. said that the hierarchy of needs, I think like number one is safety and security, right? Like shelter, physically a shelter, and then water and food, and then safety and security. So it is, and, and liberty is way down as far as the psychological hierarchy of needs. It's way right. down the list. Um, us libertarians, maybe conservatives, and definitely voluntarists and anarchists, are the minority and that's okay and, and a few years ago i used to think we need to save you know save america and and most people want freedom over the last two three four years i realized most people do not want freedom above all it's not their number one priority and that's okay and, and that's where we get into secession because people a lot of people i had a, a vicious argument earlier this morning at another um uh, uh, right of center meeting conservative liberty meeting and this woman was conservative and she said no we can save america also we'll all die if we secede because everyone here is going to die without without the Berlin DC politicians centrally controlling us. And you know she's not there yet. I was there. I would have viciously argued against the session saying let's save the whole America. You know four years ago, but I've gotten further. I've, I've learned more, and I've realized most people don't want it. If you were to ask every single individual, you can do polls, which are decent, but better is asking all 330 million individuals in the United States prioritize personal liberty and explain what personal liberty means. Prioritize overall quality in every single metric and overall health and security and safety, number one and two and three. I used to think maybe everyone would say liberty above all because they understand Benjamin Franklin and Thomas Jefferson's ideology and liberty is the most important. But I think the majority of people now I realize maybe, you know, between one and 5% would say liberty is the number one priority. For others, it would be equality or it would be safety and security. So people just don't want it and that's okay. I used to say let's convince them all. Now I realize, you know what? Most people do not give a crap about liberty and that's fine. We need to secede. In California, you know, I'm working with the CalExit movement because I love Marcus Ruiz Evans. I love the guys in CalExit, but their number one priority is definitely not liberty. They want us to secede from the union because they believe that unlike the union, California believes in equality and safety and right. health and security above all. And that is their priority. And that's fine. I, I used to fight them. I'm not going to fight them anymore. Let them be them. I, I love them. I want them to be happy. If they believe in equality above liberty, let California be its own nation state and they can live with that ideology. And I hope it works out well for them. I really do. But here in New Hampshire, our motto is live for your die. And in New Hampshire, if you come and visit, people really believe in that. So I think the majority, of, a big, 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 big majority of New Hampshire citizens do believe in liberty above equality and health and safety and everything else. Liberty has to be, you know, and we're the only state with no seat, mandatory adult seatbelt law and no motorcycle helmet law. And again, most people still wear seatbelts, although most do not wear helmets, to be honest, when they ride motorcycles. But again, liberty above, above safety. They believe in live free or die. So let people make their own decisions, especially with current fascism. So that's, I guess, the, the long answer to the question of I, I don't think most people, some do, but the majority of people in the United States don't care about liberty. They want equality or safety to be taken care of. They don't want that personal responsibility that comes with personal liberty. And that's fine. And we can be, you know, only a few million people like those in New Hampshire and those maybe in Texas or maybe a few in Florida want liberty and the rest, they can go live in their independent states as well. I think every state should be totally independent of the union. Yeah, I mean, I think it's interesting that you say that. I do think that it's true, but I, what's interesting to me, what's kind of funny, ironic, I guess, is that for me, like I believe in liberty because I think that does give us safety and security because to the biggest, I, I mean, clearly, 
over the last hundreds of years, uh, the biggest danger to the people comes from the form of government over and over again. Um, I mean, there's no question, the genocides, the wars, the damage. Um, and that's the thing that has most concerned me since these corona mandates have come on. Like the, the fact that people don't have any respect anymore for in the, these ideas of individual freedoms, uh, that means that they're going to let the state do what? Like at what point does it stop? I mean, you know, people have concerns about what camps for unvaccinated people. We're, we're already dealing with people losing their, their jobs. Um, just all kinds of things. So I, you know, I just don't like, I, I think, I, I guess what I would say is that the government uses fear to justify itself. And then people believe because they're so frightened that this, this organization is going to give them, uh, the security that they seek. Um, but I have the opposite approach to it. I really look at, at government power and it, that's what frightens me, you know, <laughs> like it's that's an excellent point. And I've said this in a few articles and probably in a few of my books recently, and I've said it a lot on videos and podcasts mm -hmm. and speeches, the, the federal government and government in general was created in the United States and, and all over. I think it was created for one reason to protect life, liberty, pursuit of happiness, property, and our natural rights. They were, they were created to protect it. Not only is the federal government and all governments consistently for 240 years failed to protect our natural rights and our freedom and our property and our life, they are the chief violators. They are the number one threat to our lives and our prosperity and our happiness and our other natural rights. So for instance, the federal government was there to protect our life and liberty and, and natural rights. Imagine it like a bodyguard. Imagine if your bodyguard, you pay, you know, uh, $30 trillion or you pay $5 trillion a year, a few million right. dollars a year for a bodyguard. They fail to protect you 100%, but they are also not just failing to protect you, not just wandering off and not protecting you. They are literally the ones attacking you the most. They are the ones beating you up every day. Would you next year, re, would you uh, renew that contract with that bodyguard? You know, it, it's a no-brainer question. They, they literally do the opposite of what we pay them. We, the federal government, everyone admits, look at the Constitution, the Declaration. They were set up, created um, to preserve the natural rights, life, liberty, pursuit of happiness. That's why they were created. Right? They weren't created to make themselves rich kings off us and create vaccines and make 40 billion for them and their friends. They were created, they admit, or they pretend to believe, and, and everyone says they were created to protect our natural rights. They don't protect it at all. And almost everyone would admit the biggest violator of our life, liberty, pursuit of happiness is the government. So according to the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution, the government should not exist. For 240 years, it's not a one blip, you know, little uh, anomaly, freak, yeah. freak accident. For 240 years, every day they have proved that Increasingly, they are doing the exact opposite of what they were created to do. Meaning, and call me a crazy radical anarchist, but this is what you know. All of the the authors of the Declaration and Constitution, and everyone in government admits they were created for one reason. They do the exact opposite. Therefore, the federal government should not exist anymore. Yeah, I mean, what what really gets me is when people look at the the functioning of government as if. I mean, I think so many people. I, well, one of the things that I've been doing, I've been calling it the government corporate complex because. I don't, I've never, I haven't been able to understand why people separate like the government's on one side and it's trying to protect us from the free market and the corporations are on the other side and they represent the free market. And, you know, we need to kind of, we need to stop these big corporations from controlling our lives. But when I look at the government, it looks like it's working 100% with this massive corporate system. And it's, it's like unbelievably corrupt. I mean, right. The like, fascism part. Yeah, yeah. Fascism is defined as government being together in one entity with private business, right? And and that's why I love the name Corona Fascism. Yeah. Because I think 
I think the last two years, people have woken up to corona fascism, and they realize that the government is so in bed. You know, ask any random person on the street about Pfizer and Moderna and the government, and they'll tell you they understand because of Fauci and Gates and the NIH and all the funding. The government and Pfizer and Moderna and other big companies are one and the same. They're all making money, and I didn't even realize till a few months ago that people, government agents like Fauci within the the NIH, NIAID, the CDC, FDA. Government agents can literally own patents, and Fauci owns tons, and they can also own, I think, they can get royalties, they can make millions of royalties from pharmaceuticals, which is the biggest conflict of interest ever, and they also can have, I think, equity in these companies, and and I think the NIH, or maybe the CDC, has a partnership with Moderna with this vaccine, so they co-own the vaccine. I mean, there's so much fascism, even I didn't realize it. And I wouldn't have believed it if you said it a year ago. And then I, I researched it, and it's now it's it's uh, pretty yeah. openly known now. It's not disputed that the federal government is so involved in business. Like Fauci's made probably millions or billions over his career from owning pharmaceuticals, even though he and his wife and other friends of his are supposed to be regulating them. So yeah, is is the fox guarding the hen house? Yeah, I mean it's such fascism and cronyism and a conflict of interest. It's unbelievable. The, uh, I was reading in the, the, the real Dr. Fauci, the RFK book, and he tells the story about remdesivir. And like you said, like even I, who clearly have understood this corruption for a long time, I was just blown away to realize that they, the government made, discovered remdesivir and then paid a grant to uh, the scientists to do the studies on it and then gave the grant to Gilead Sciences to to uh, build out the manufacturing for it and then required uh, all the hospitals in the country to use it as a treatment and allowed them to charge $3,000 a pop for something that cost them $10 to make. And so it's like this corporation had zero risk and zero liability and just made billions and billions of dollars, just had it handled. the kicker. (laughs) <laughs> with, with remdesivir and like Fauci did decades ago with AIDS, same thing. Yeah. They crushed the competition. Decades ago it was co- competition, other medications that they didn't own or make money from. Now remdesivir is their medication they're making billions from. They had to crush hydroxychloroquine, ivermectin, right. monoclonal antibodies, and anything against the vaccines and remdesivir they had to crush. And they used their partners with modern technology and Facebook and stuff. And Biden, Saki, yeah, I've even said this. They're working with Facebook to crush ivermectin and hydroxychloroquine. I think I include that in the book. I've written articles about that as well. So yeah, same playbook. I'm almost done the real Anthony Fauci about RFK, and it is so disturbing. Yeah. I don't know how anyone can read that book and not be a full-on anarchist and think the government is helping us. Overall, the government has hurt us so much. And again, this is where you go from libertarian to anarchist. Libertarians think we need a small government. Once you realize that there's number one, government doesn't stay small. If it were created small, it would be massive Goliath in a year and get bigger every day. But even a small government, it's just not moral. It's not helping us. The government hurts us. If you read anyone who reads that book or listens on audiobook, The Real Anthony Fauci by RFK, you realize the government has hurt people. They have killed probably millions of people with, with AIDS. They've killed millions of people because of COVID, corona fascism. They've killed millions in so many other ways, the FDA, the NIH, everything they've done. They've killed millions. If the government didn't exist, we would have millions more people. Well, not less. People think yeah. the government saves lives. They don't. The government has killed more lives than they've saved. And again, I, I've been writing about the FDA issues for, for decades. I could I could do a whole hour or a whole book on the FDA and, and the federal government, NIH, HHS, how they hurt people. The government hurts more people than it helps. On the net, they are a net detriment to our health and safety and our livelihood. And again, that's where that's where when I realized this, I went from libertarian to voluntarist, and I realized we're better off without the government. 
And the kicker is that you are being forced to pay $4 billion to run the FDA. You're being forced to pay billions to run the NIH. Yeah. So they're hurting people, they're evil, and you are paying for them to hurt people. Well, that's one of the things that really shocks me about, I mean, the progressive argument that a free market results in the centralization of the means of production. And then you look at the government and it's like, how? what's the government doing? My God, all it does is centralize the means of production and then hand out you know, to a handful of corporations billions of dollars. You know, another thing that was in the the RFK book was really the realization of because of AIDS, Fauci had what? It was like uh, over a half a trillion dollars, five hundred billion dollars in grant money. I mean, when he when Fauci says he is the science, it's not because he's actually looking at the peer reviewed scientific papers. It's because he gave out five hundred billion dollars to control the entire scientific narrative across the country over the last 15 years. So he can control what the scientific community says what what comes out of it what's going on and it's just it's amazing to think that this one entity has centralized power so much that it has just unlimited amount of money to influence entire economies across the board i mean it's almost it's interesting to me because i think about how so many people feel like you know the united states is a capitalist country and then china is a communist country and then you like look at the two you know are they really very similar. different are they the united states <laughs> The United States is closer to China's style economy than it is to a free market economy. Yeah, absolutely. Very, very similar. Um, China has a lot of regulation and very high taxes. And the CCP, the, the Chinese Communist Party, takes like 51% stake in companies generally when they when they want to have operations in China. The U.S. government works a bit differently. We're not as overt. Um, China, at least, is pretty honest. Like, hey, we're going to take 51% stake in your company. But the other 49%, you could probably do what you want and make profits. But just give us 51%. The United States is a little different, but probably even worse, I would argue, because they don't say they're taking 51% stake, even though they kind of do. They take you know, 20 to 50% of, of your money, but also we have billions of costly regulations that China probably doesn't have. So overall, the economic freedom, as far as regulations that are just restricting companies with red tape, I don't know about China, because it's kind of hard to know all their red tape, but yeah. the US government just might have more red tape. So they have 51% stake thing, which is, which is semi-communist. But the U.S. government has that plus regulation. So we have taxes and regulation. So I can make an interesting argument that the U.S. government might be even more communist than China. So very similar system. Um, and the government does own stake, like we saw with, with Moderna. That that's a, a partnership between, I think, the NIH and Moderna. They partnered for their vaccine. So we do have public-private partnerships, which is fascist. And people don't realize this. I had a long debate about this a few months ago here in New Hampshire at a formal debate we have every, every month. And yeah, there are a lot of public-private partnerships. You know, that's the, the nice laundered way of saying fascism, right? Yeah. <laughs> they call it public-private partnership. We're working together in government and private sector, like the MTA and the airlines and everything else and the insurance companies. Yeah, call it what it is. It's fascism. It's the government, but they're claiming to work under a private sector so they can have private actors do their dirty work for them, especially like we're seeing with current fascism. Yeah, it's actually amazing. The other thing that... Um... Uh, really impacted me with the Corona thing and, and the healthcare system. And as you work in the healthcare field, maybe you could comment on this, but I was amazed at how little uh, power, you know, because again, I, I just think people really misperceive what's actually going on. I mean, I, I actually, my argument is that everywhere in the world, there's just fascism. It's not, you know, there's not capitalism versus common, even during the cold war, there were private companies that worked with Russia, Western corporations that worked with the communist government in Russia. Um, and even the Russian communist model was was modeling their factories off corporate systems of, you know, building the factories and Taylorism and Fordism and things like that. And so it's like, why in so many people's minds, there's this perception that that the United States is somehow capitalist. And then 
from the progressive point of view, then they look at the United States and go, well, this is capitalist and it's not working. So we need, you know, more progressive. Mm -hmm. uh, we, we need more centralization. We need the government to take more power. Um, yeah, you're 100% right. It's, it's all fascism. There's no totally free market operation. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with the term agorism. Yeah. So so a lot of anarchists, libertarians, they talk about agorism, A-G-O-R-I-S-M. Agorism, I think the general definition, I think, is like doing total free market or black market operations outside of the system, not obeying any laws or taxes or regulations or anything. And, and that would be a pure free market. Again, when I was conservative or libertarian, I thought black market was a negative term. I thought it meant you're a dangerous criminal. Now I think black market literally just means free market. Yeah. And that's all it means. It literally means free market, not regulated or taxed or abused by federal, by uh, government officials. So, for instance, there's no real black market or agorism or free market operations left in the United States. I mean, there are a few, but they're illegal, right? So maybe the, the, weed, the weed cannabis dealer, drug dealers, that is agorism. Whether you like drugs or not, that's relevant. That's agorism. And that's pretty un unrestricted by the government. Me selling my books personally, I've sold over $2,000 worth of, of you know, books um, you know, over the last year, technically. Um, and that's, that's total free market, right? So that there were no restrictions. I, I sold it. People wanted to buy it. And that's free market. If I train someone as a personal trainer once in a while, I train clients. That's total free market. They give me uh, $30 an hour or some have actually given me, I think, uh, a ounce round of silver or pay in crypto or goldbacks or something, that's free market. There's no regulation, no restriction by government. But other than those few tiny examples, there's no real example. Walmart is not a free market. It's not a capitalist uh, company. The majority of what they do, not even 1%, probably 51%, probably more than half, is what they do is not based on the board of directors, what, the, what their wishes are. It's based on what the government wants. For instance, if you run a business, the most important decisions that you have over your business are deciding who to hire, who to fire, hours of operation and the prices for the products and services, right? I think we'd all agree that those are the, the core um, uh, issues that people uh, have with their business and those are the decisions they make. All of those decisions I just mentioned are made by the government. They tell you how much you can pay, who you can hire and fire because of uh, discrimination and quotas and everything and, and affirmative action. Hours of operation, they tell you about, they tell you what you can sell for what prices, we have price controls. So every single thing that a business does is actually, those decisions are made by the government. So unless you're a, a black market agorist business like my tiny book selling business or other things I might do privately, real businesses with storefronts that register as corporations, especially the majority of their decisions are made by government officials, meaning they are, you know, quasi government or, or mostly government or fascist entities. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's crazy. I actually worked in the cannabis industry here in Northern California. And as a, a libertarian minded person myself, you know, I was always a proponent of legalization. And I'll tell you, when when the full legalization came down the pike, it's been amazing to watch how it devastated the uh, the the mom and pop cannabis industry in Northern California. Like like when legalization happened, they actually put up so many barriers to entry, so many regulations. It was so expensive to to participate in the legal market. Uh, and then, of course, the big corporations came in, flooded the market because they can afford to, uh, driving prices way down, uh, putting the mom and pops out of business. And then the industry that was really supporting, I mean, in Mendocino County, I think you, I bet it was 60, 70 percent, you know, were had a little grow on the side and we're making a, a couple a little bit of extra cash uh, in the medical market or prior to that, just the the black market, like you say, uh, and to watch quote unquote legalization happen and then 
how how corporatist it ended up being. I mean, this is what the government does. This is why I get so. I mean, I'm, I'm flabbergasted and I'm frustrated by the progressive perspective that continues to say that the free market automatically results in this like corporate takeover of everything. Because every shred of evidence I've ever seen in my personal life, in books, in history books, and reading the history has shown that these the government comes in, takes over a market, and then through government largesse and these barriers to entry gives a monopolized market to a handful of corporate entities that make massive profits uh, at the expense of the common person. It's 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 frustrating that most people can't like observe that this is what's going on and recognize that the solution is to decentralize government power, <laughs> let people you know get to work and run a business. Exactly. All all we know is that pretty much every monopoly we see now was created by the government. The government. Uh, restricts or kills off or hurts the other businesses and then gives those few companies a monopoly. And people have said this before, and I, I mentioned this in the book Corona Fascism as well, because in the last two years, a lot of smaller businesses were killed and Walmart and Amazon and Google boomed, obviously, and, and Zoom and a lot of other online companies did very, very well. Right. And yeah, especially during Corona Fascism, and, and I list a lot of the businesses like Amazon up like whatever percent doubled in valuations, Google, um, you know, Facebook, all the, the big tech companies and all the other bigger companies like Walmart that was allowed to stay open while smaller mom and pop shops were closed down because Walmart can can handle some uh, assault and, and some difficulties in the market, whereas small shops go out of business because they don't have that buffer. So, yeah, I, th I think a lot of people are realizing this as well, and they're, they're calling it the biggest wealth transfer in history. Yeah, exactly. And, and it just may have been. I mean, I don't understand how people can't see it and then think that, you know, like maybe they did this on purpose, guys. You know, maybe they wanted to extract, I think, $1.5 trillion from the middle class into the into the hands of, you know, the 0.1% or so. It's just, it's amazing to watch. And, and still the vast majority of people consider that, well, it had to be done for our safety. Again, going back to this safety thing, like I... I think the safety excuse is something that they use all the time because they can play off people's fear and it just shuts down their critical thinking. And so they go along to get along with all of these crazy rules and regulations that, I mean, like you said, I mean, the remdesivir use likely killed hundreds of thousands of people. Like, why can't, why can't you see that? You know, just because Dr. Fauci says something doesn't make it true. I can show you dozens and dozens of peer reviewed scientific papers that say early treatments work and keep people out of the hospital and save lives. I mean, why didn't we do well, the that? the suppression of <laughs> ivermectin and hydroxychloroquine and monoclonal antibodies and just more uh, natural, decent lifestyle choices definitely killed millions. That right. I can say pretty confidently. I'm fairly certain. I know there are studies out there as well. I'm sure they killed millions. And again, this we're talking about mass murder, you know, like a yeah. genocide type of it's... thing the government's guilty of. Yeah, I think a lot of people are waking up to after corona fascism and it did help wake up a lot more libertarians i think and don't forget the wealth transfer wasn't just to big american companies china who then were able to shut down the world economy they did lock down they did eventually get over it and they went back up also they were able to sell the ppe so the gloves the sure. masks maybe some gowns maybe other ppe they probably sold billions and billions worth around the world because a lot of it is manufactured in china because again they're smart communist dictators so the united states government are are communist dictators authoritarians but they're not really that smart and not very successful the chinese are actually doing the same thing but better so for instance <laughs> the chinese government doesn't have a lot of regulations and they allow for cheaper labor to happen and allow for cheaper production because they have less regulations so of course you know american progressive communists will say yes well we have an epa thank god to keep us safe yeah i've heard that crap at sps 
But right. right now, because of the, the EPA and the thousands of regulations, and I just was double-checking with another friend on regulations, we have millions, probably billions of regulations federally in the United States. What that does is it, is it makes it very difficult. That plus minimum wage, you know, wage controls in various states makes it very costly to produce things. People ask, why are things produced in China? The very simple answer is the U.S. government has made things too expensive to produce. It costs too much to hire people for tons of reasons, from minimum wage, OSHA, ADA, FICA, payroll taxes, state and federal payroll and income taxes, and just the regulations. If you start a company that manufactures gloves, vinyl gloves, for instance, you probably have to hire a million lawyers and compliance officers to make sure you're compliant. Now, to, once you're spending a billion dollars on lawyers and compliance officers, you have to pass that cost on, and every glove sells for $17 instead of $0.03. Cents. So China doesn't have to deal with the federal regulators because China probably has more economic freedom or definitely has more economic freedom than the U.S. So they can produce those gloves for you know uh, 85,000 gloves for 17 pennies, and then they can sell it to the world. So China's probably made billions selling the gloves and masks and other PPE to the world because they actually have a more economic free market than we do in the United States because we can't produce gloves and masks and things like that in the United States. It costs too much because, and again, not because the free market, people say capitalism failed, again, that's their scapegoat, they love it. But the federal government has made things so costly, you cannot produce things here. We could produce things here because we have, you know, the manpower, we have workers just like China does, people who are willing to work for whatever wage, I don't know, probably similar to Chinese workers, but we can't because the U.S. government, again, the politicians make it too expensive to produce things here. And it sucks. People say, don't buy made in China, you know, buy support American. Sorry, I can't afford to pay a thousand times the price of something for, you know, just to buy American. I'm sorry, I can't do it. And again, it's the fault of your dear politicians, the bastards who you voted for. You know, stop voting for American politicians. Vote for maybe a Ron Paul. Vote for, you know, anarchism. Vote for voluntarism or just secede so we have no more federal regulations. Yeah. So, yeah, that's another important point that China has probably made out like bandits. They've probably made billions on corona fascism just by selling the PPE and the test kits and everything else to the rest of the world. Yeah, I think what's even more interesting is that they've been selling to us that uh, China succeeded against the coronavirus because of the lockdowns. And at least according to my research, they they were prioritizing early treatment. They were using uh, IV vitamin C, which the FBI actually raided people here in the United States who were trying to do that. Uh, And then I think they and they at least according to Dr. Robert Malone, uh, they were using hydroxychloroquine. And I know, you know, I know they were giving people early treatment. Unlike here, where people were literally told to go home and come back with remdesivir, and then for remdesivir, when they get super, super sick, and then when our numbers are terrible, they're saying that it's the lockdowns. We didn't lock down hard enough. We didn't wear masks enough. We're not vaccinated enough. And it's like, like um, because I, I guess, you know, ultimately what I'm seeing is that as you the Chinese are better at it. And I think the American oligarchs are looking to implement a Chinese style system here. And they've just been using this whole thing to help uh, facilitate all of that. 100% I would agree. I think I've said for years, since I was an adult, I said the United States is heading towards a Chinese style semi-communist system. But again, Xi Jinping, obviously he's evil. And, and for all of his negatives, he's just better at it than Dictator Biden or anyone in D.C. D.C. Yeah. politicians are evil. They're stupid. They're incompetent. They're just really bad at doing these things, which is not just good because if they're going to be evil communist dictators, I generally want them to be incompetent at doing that evil thing. Um, but that being said, China is doing all the same things they're doing. You know, it's, it's um, you call it fascism or, cap- or venture capitalism or venture socialism. Um, but they're doing the same things in China. They're just better at it. But yeah, as soon as I heard about the social credit score as well in China 10 years ago when I heard about it, 
I said, oh, this is coming to the United States. Yeah. And now we see it's coming. They call it ESG scores. They're not going to call it social credit. They call it environmental, uh, social, and governance. So they're giving scores, like a credit score, to first they're starting with big banks and business, but some banks are already assigning those scores to individuals. And obviously, if you're not pro-envirofascism and socialism and um, governance and social justice and all that stuff, and you don't support the government, you'll have a low social credit score. And eventually, so right now, it'll just make it harder to get loans from certain banks, but whatever. But eventually, it'll make it harder to get loans from the government if it hasn't yet already. And it'll be harder to get into school, especially government, you know, state colleges, and it'll get harder and harder. So the social credit score is here. We have a bill in New Hampshire to ban social credit scores, even from private banks. I hope that bill passes. It's a pretty good bill. It actually has punishments in it too, I believe, for banks who violate it. But it's coming here and everything, the, the social social credit scores, the other fascism they have in China, the US government wants to do it, but for better or for worse, they're just really incompetent. But yeah, I think the United States government, federally, the union is heading towards China. And in roughly five years, the United States might be almost indistinguishable from China. And I know they have like whatever few billion cameras, they have facial recognition technology, I think pretty robust already. But again, the United States government Look into it. How many facial recognition capable cameras they're capable of uh, tapping into? I don't know. I think it's a lot. And mm -hmm. uh, already a lot of police departments in New York City and other big cities have cameras that do have facial recognition already in the United States for already a decade, I think, actually. So and the federal government, I'm sure, can tap into that either by asking or by getting a warrant or subpoena. So but they could probably just tap in if they want. So we're so close to China. It's pretty scary. A lot of people don't realize it. Um, and, and the only way to save it, again, the, the two options are either go to D.C., elect great people. People like Doug and Alu to be in Congress and we'll save the world. Right. We're not going to win. And if we do win, we're not going to save the world. We'll get crushed in Congress. I can admit it because I'm smart enough to admit it. I understand how it works. Me, I think I'm great, strong, and profane. I would be crushed like a cockroach in Congress. It would crush me. I wouldn't win, but if I won a seat in Congress, I wouldn't have any good effect. Like Thomas Massey doesn't pass a lot of bills, right? So, but Ron Paul. So yeah. that's, yeah, that, that's one, one method is going to Congress and fixing it. The other is secession. Both are pretty unlikely, um, which is more likely. You being elected to Congress and saving the world or a state leaving the union. I would argue a state leaving the union, as unlikely as it is, is more likely than a few people finally going to Congress and fixing it. We've been hearing that every two years for 240 years, right? Go elect me for Congress and we'll fix everything in the union. It's yeah. never going to happen. I have four, all four Republicans running in CD1 in New Hampshire are my friends. They're pro-freedom. They say they love freedom. I, I like them a lot. Some of them have been um, state reps and they've proven they have a good track record of freedom. And they said, Alu, I'm going to go to Congress, donate to me and help me. I'm going to fix Congress. And I say, listen, I love you. You love freedom. I'm not going to waste my money. You're not going to go to Congress. You're not going to fix anything in Congress. You can't. It is not fixable. Even Trump, the ultimate outsider, self-funded billionaire, he's unstable. He's crazy. He doesn't care what others think of him. Still, he could not fix D.C. at all. He did little to nothing to fix D.C. as president for four years. Yeah. And even with control of Congress for two years, they did essentially nothing. So what makes you think that some – uh, pipsqueak is going to go to Congress and fix all of Congress because they like freedom. It's, it's a ridiculous notion. Secession is, is a lot more likely. And like I've explained the blueprint of liberty for so many reasons, because the union is so different. Every state is diverging opinions and, and ideologies. And because increasing abuses from DC politicians, I have an article with 92 reasons we have to leave DC. For all those reasons, I think secession is the, the only way to preserve freedom. If you want your grandkids to have freedom, what are you going to do? Vote harder for Congress? Do the same thing you've been doing for 240 years or do something different? I think the only way we're going to get freedom and our kids are going to have more freedom than we have or as much as we have and not lose freedom like 
and not have the amount of freedom they have in China is going to be secession. If you are listening to this, you are listening to the first free hour of The Shift with Doug McKinty. For access to the full feature-length versions of the podcast, go to www.theshiftnow.com and subscribe for the audio version for just $6 a month. Access the full-length episodes in video form through rockfin.com by subscribing at the Shift with Doug McKinty landing page. For $9.99 a month, you gain access not only to The Shift, but also all other premium content material hosted on the platform. Find out more at www.theshiftnow.com backslash store. Detoxify your body, decolonize your mind, make the shift. Yeah, that's the other thing that's been driving me crazy is, of course, now, you know, you start to hear on the mainstream narrative, all of this, like, uh, people who do believe in liberty or individual rights, I mean, they must automatically be racist or white supremacist or domestic terrorists. I mean, it's just phenomenal because, and this, and this, Actually, to me, points to the fact that maybe guys like you and I are at, are onto something. Because if they weren't scared of these ideas, they wouldn't be, you know, pushing back so hard against them, not teaching them in school, propagandizing people with uh, all of this negative imagery about people who think like this. So, there, you know, there must be something going on. We must be doing something right, or else they wouldn't be going to such great lengths to uh, try to pretend like we don't exist, right? <laughs> I agree. They definitely are threatened because liberty is winning. All I can speak for is in New Hampshire. I think liberty and independence from the union is winning. Um, so they're, they're definitely threatened and, and they're certainly uh, attacking us a whole lot as, as insurrectionists and white supremacists and crazy evil capitalists and all that. So that's a good point. We are over the target and, and you know, clearly we're over the target because they are attacking us. I agree. Yeah. Cool. Well, it's getting to be time to wrap it up, but I do want to spend, let's spend a little bit of time, maybe, maybe 10 minutes or so, five, 10 minutes here at the end. Cause I did want to kind of touch on this national defense issue with you. Cause it's so interesting. Um, you know, I remember like, for example, in the, in the works of Thomas Jefferson, he talks about the dangers of having a standing army. And I think that there is a good argument that that's really what's probably driven most of the growth of government in the United States is having the standing army and then just growing and growing and growing. It's such a huge, now it's a huge part of the whole economy. And, and so there's actually a lot of central planning that can occur just based on, you know, the technologies that they develop through, through the military. The, I mean, they're spend a trillion dollars a year on, on military spending. That's a, a huge, a large enough portion of the entire GDP that they can really manipulate. I mean, between that and the healthcare industries, you know, they're manipulating large swaths of, of the economy where it gives them a, a huge amount of control. Um, and I think that, you know, severely reducing the size of the army or even eliminating the standing army. And for a long, this was one that was hard, the hardest thing for me to kind of get over. I mean, you know, I think the prejudices that people have as they get into this work, the currency is a big one, like the idea of competing currency, people just can't believe. Um, but the idea of not having a standing army uh, is something that really blows people's minds. They're so used to it. It's so normalized to have this behemoth military that, and and then people are told to think that, that this is keeping them safe and secure from the terrorists or, you know, all of the threats from the communists uh, all over the world. Um, but if we didn't have a standing army and we did have more of this really decentralized idea of national defense, because I think in, in your book, you were really basically talking about going all the way back to, you know, essentially the idea of, of kind of like local groups, local militias, individuals that, that have gun rights. How do you think that would work? Well, I think 
decentralization in general, again, I'm not, I'm not a you know military general or amazing strategist or anything, but I think in general decentralization, from even when uh, Jacob said, don't put all your eggs in one basket or whatever, um, uh, decentralize all of your power. Right now, the federal government, if you think of it this way, the, the most likely attacks are you know cybersecurity, probably the CCP and probably Russia and others have been hacking our systems for a while, our private and government systems. And right now, technically, if you consider America one big thing, I don't consider it a country as a union, but yeah. the right now the CCP can take over all of America by hacking the Pentagon. So one computer or one network in the Pentagon, the CCP can hack it. And again, I'm sure they have cybersecurity. I'm sure the geniuses in DC are doing great. And I'm sure they have a great firewall and all that. But the CCP, who is smarter than Americans, can hack it. They can take over all of America. If the federal government didn't exist and we had 50 different states with total independent sovereignty, the CCP to take over the same amount of people, 330 million Americans, would have to hack 50 different computers with different types of networks, different types of, of cybersecurity in place, right? So what's harder, hacking one network or 50? Right? Mm-hmm. So right there, people say, and I was arguing with someone this morning who was extremely arrogant and nasty and saying, oh, you're young and stupid. You don't know shit. You're stupid, all that stuff. And you, oh, if without the federal government, we'd all die. CCP would kill us all. I tried explaining, but she kept talking over me. I tried explaining. Right now, literally, it's very simple. Everyone agrees. The Pentagon has um, networks of, of you know servers and computers, and the CCP can hack it. 50 states or even decentralizing down to the county level. Can they hack 3,000 different county government networks? It would be impossible because some counties like Cheshire County in West Keene, in, in West New Hampshire, with Keene, with tons of cybersecurity experts, would have tremendous firewalls that CCP probably couldn't hack. Maybe they could hack some in middle of Texas. Maybe they could hack some in middle of California. Maybe they couldn't hack some in Wyoming. Maybe they couldn't hack some in Iowa. I don't know. But yeah. if, with, again, with 3,000 different counties or with, you know, 100,000 different computer networks to hack. The CCP couldn't have the manpower to hack 100,000 or a million or 330 million different networks. If I have a small VPN of cybersecurity here in my house, they would have to work hard to hack my one house. What would you have to do? Hack one network or hack 330 million different networks? It's very simple. Decentralization works for cybersecurity. Yeah. So as far as cybersecurity on a simple level, most likely we'd all be safer the more we decentralize from federal government, which is one to 50 states, down to counties, down to towns, down to individual level decentralization. As far as military as well, decentralization works. Right now they can, again, bomb DC and we're all spooked. If we all decentralize and we all have 50 state militias that can work together, but also can have their own types of tactics. Right now they know US military tactics, right? Anyone can go to Amazon for 10 bucks and buy the United States Army Ranger Handbook, right? That has all the basic tactics for how the entire US military fights in wars, I believe, right? So maybe they'll give away all their secrets. I'm sure DC military geniuses are, are amazing, smart tacticians, but you know, you, if, once you know U.S. military tactics, you know U.S. military tactics. If we really had 50 dependent states, we'd have 50 different national guards, which, again, originally were supposed to be our militaries for our states, yeah. with 50 different types of tactics. Yeah, we could do drills together and work together and help each other with alliances, but would you want to defeat 50 army, 50 militaries with different mindsets? New Hampshire grant staters fight different than Texans, different than Floridians, and we fight differently from Californians. We fight differently. We're different kinds of fighters. I'm a boxer. You know, some guys are grapplers. We fight differently, right? So with diversity and even further down, right, we can have the National Guard and militias with, you know, 5,000 militia groups, which we already probably have in New Hampshire. But once we really primarily make militia the primarily primary defense force, would you rather, would you rather fight one military with 1,000 people or 500 militaries of, you know, uh, 20 people each of different militia guerrilla groups fighting different styles? It's very hard to fight thousands of unique diverse different types of militia groups. So, you know, for, for those reasons and so many more, I think we'd actually be safer militarily from cybersecurity and from actual hot war force on force military action conflict um if we did decentralize down to states and even further down as well. Yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, decentralization really on so many levels, it functions so much better than this idea of centralizing, whether it's economic planning or military or education. Um, you know, I think it's worth noting for those who are doubters that the U.S. empire, right, hasn't really had a great track record in terms of defeating uh, guerrilla style fighters over the last, uh, you know, 50, 60 years, because uh, it, exactly what you're talking about. It really does work. I mean, you can't, you can't go door to door. I mean, a big centralized military can really only fight another big centralized military. It, it can't, you know, it can't go door to door. It can't deal with uh, really decentralized, but fairly well organized, at least on a community level system of self-defense. I mean, they, they don't, they never win. Right. I mean, even if they kind of win for a little while, it becomes impossible to, to sustain any kind of a, uh, uh, any kind of, a, you know, a real force that can organize and control a large area of land when you've got a well-armed population and you've got to fight them door to door. I mean, it's not going to happen. So uh, the, the more United States military has not won a war since World War II, right? Vietnam kind of lost. The war on terror, we spent five, ten trillion dollars over the last 20 years, right. lost a lot of money and lost the wars on terror. Uh, we the U.S. government, not me, the U.S. government politicians created ISIS, and that's not disputable anymore. Everyone agrees they created ISIS. They armed rebels. They turned out to be ISIS. They became ISIS later. They either created and or armed and trained Taliban, and then they gave them 20 to $80 billion worth of weapons when they left in, yeah. in magnanimous defeat about a year ago. So they lost against Taliban, lost against ISIS, lost against the other terrorist groups. They've lost other wars. The Cold War with China and Russia, the United States government is losing. They lost in Vietnam. They're losing the other wars. If if they do go to fight in uh, Ukraine or, or Taiwan, if China moves in on Taiwan, the US government will probably lose as well. So yeah, either they don't want to win or they're incompetent or pathetic or guerrilla warfare really does work. Again, I don't know. I'm not a guerrilla warfare expert, but the US government, like you said, fighting Taliban and the war on terror and ISIS in the Middle East for the last uh, 20 years or so has continually lost and they're spending trillions of dollars of my money. So I, I wrote an article last night, last 9-11 or a year or two ago, I was, you know, thinking about 9-11 and I wrote an article, finally, my first one about 9-11 and I realized I did the math, you know, the United States government spent $5 trillion for that price. They could have bought everyone in the United States, you know, their own college and free college for life and a new Maserati That's and a new house. Just amazing. Their lives. $5 trillion. Um, they spent that in the war on terror and you have nothing to show for it besides yeah. more, um, some Lives lost of innocent people in the Middle East and innocent people here, and my friends who are veterans have PTSD now and those who commit suicide. So that, that's all we have to show for. So the U.S. government either doesn't want to win the wars, because you know, like Orwell said, the war is meant to be continuous, not one, um, or or they're really incompetent. Because everything I hear from people in D.C. who are in, in on the ground, they say D.C. politicians and uh, regulators and even the military is so incompetent beyond imagination. There's just so incompetent. They can't get anything done properly. They couldn't pick their own nose or tie their own shoes, I don't think. So right. people in D.C. are just so goddamn incompetent. So I don't know if they want to win the war or they're evil or they're on the side of ISIS or Taliban, which they created them. So they kind of are. But they're just so incompetent. It could just be incompetence. So, yes, if the federal government tried to kill everyone in New Hampshire, they'd probably fail from sheer incompetence. Even if the military was willing to kill their you know fellow citizens and cousins and friends and neighbors in New Hampshire for – for exercising a natural right to divorce and abuse a partner, even if they were willing to kill them, they'd probably fail because they're just incompetent. Yeah. Well, it seems like moving forward, I mean, we either are going to have to decentralize and, you know, at least even standing up and arguing for secession is a great way to promote that concept, or we're, we're going to have to go the agorist route and have parallel systems because, I mean, there's, it's almost, 
you know, is it a natural law? Is it is it a rule of the universe that government has to grow over time? I mean, it's not like they're going to decide one day, oh, this isn't working. I mean, like you're, you know, even with the incompetence concept, it doesn't stop them from making billions and billions of dollars. I mean, there's so much money that's getting thrown around Washington, D.C. that these guys can pretend like they're successful, even when they've never actually accomplished anything in the decades of of service in, in Congress or, you know, however they're whatever cog they are in the machine of Washington, D.C., um, because they think they're making great money. So they must be making something happen and uh, nothing ever ends up happening. So. I really appreciate the work that you've done to uh, spread these ideas of liberty and actually pushing for secession. It seems like such a such a radical concept, but I hope that it becomes more and more normalized because uh, at the very least, you know, we need to start having uh, flexing some kind of muscle against these guys in Washington, D.C. I mean, they've exerted so much control. Um, you're talking about the trillions that were wasted on uh on the war against terror, but also, I mean, just in the last couple of years with the coronavirus thing, like trillion, $2 trillion bills getting passed. And then that money's just gone. Like on what, what do we get for that as well? It's just like unbelievable the amount of money these guys can throw around and almost accomplish absolutely nothing in terms of, you know, people really feeling anything. Now we have, we just have a bunch of inflation, right? <laughs> we didn't get anything for that except for a big pile of inflation. That's probably going to be spanking us hard in the next year or two. We'll see what happens. But, um, but yeah, if you've got any kind of concluding remarks and, and let people know uh, where they can get your books and where they can find out more information. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. It was an absolute pleasure. It was phenomenal. Yeah, definitely. Have to buy. And since secession is radical, you know what? In 1776, they the detractors said the most radical thought in the universe was going to war against the British Empire, the most powerful empire ever. And they did it and they won. A uh, hundred years later, maybe 1860s, they said abolishing slavery is the most radical thing ever, and they did it. Um, later on, they said women voting, that's crazy radical, they're not property owners, women shouldn't vote, and it happened. So plenty of things that were considered radical by almost everyone in the world happened. So yes, I think secession and eventually abolishing the need for taxation and maybe government altogether can happen. So everything's radical until it finally happens. You know, putting a man on the moon was radical and then it happened. So I mean, everything is you know impossible until it's done for the first time. So secession will happen, it's only a matter of time. Give it five, 10 years, it'll happen, we'll be independent. Um, as, as far as finding the books, they're all available. If you go to libertyblock.com, you can find them under um, allies or, or my books or whatever. You can find it under the page Corner Fascism. They're all for sale on Amazon. Corner Fascism is my publisher, Defiance Press. That's on Amazon as well. Um, my books are on my own Amazon account. If you go to Amazon and look for my name, Elliot Alu Axelman, or just Axelman, you'll see Corona Fascism, The Blueprint for Liberty, The Progressive Solution, which is a book I wrote. I co-authored with Marcus Ruiz Evans, the president of Calexit, for progressives why they should support independence as well. And I'm working on a fourth book I'll publish super soon called Presumed Guilty, hopefully, and then a few other books after that. Very cool. Thanks a lot, Alu. And uh, I'll let people know that you've been listening to The Shift. I'm your host, Doug McKinty. You can find uh, all of my episodes plus more up on www.theshiftnow.com. Just started writing a blog, so I'm pointing people in that direction uh, on Substack called The Populist Papers. Uh, and uh, right now, I think my personal Facebook page is the best place to kind of interact. Um, always looking for another social media site that maybe I can generate uh, some some more interest in so I can move from Facebook. But right now, that's where it's at. Um, and my stuff is on uh, Rockfin and Odyssey, the best place to see the video, SoundCloud for all the audio. Uh, and I am at D McKinty on Twitter. So you can follow me there.
All right. Thanks everybody for checking this one out. And uh, thanks, Alu, for the work that you've been doing, uh, for promoting this radical, not so radical idea of secession. Uh, and we'll keep uh, we'll keep following up to see how it goes there in New Hampshire. Hopefully we'll see some major changes happening in the next uh, couple of weeks, couple of months. Thank you so much. Yep. Take care. All right, ladies and gentlemen, there you go. That was my conversation with uh, libertarian activist and uh, secession advocate, uh, Elliot Alu Axelman. Uh, he's been prominent, actually, in the free state movement in New Hampshire and certainly uh, one of the apparently uh, growing portion of that movement that is advocating for secession. I hadn't realized how uh, how close these guys are getting to actually presenting a bill in the New Hampshire Congress to move forward with this concept. Uh, certainly very controversial, and so I wanted to have him on. As uh, those of you know who've been listening to this podcast, I've spent a lot of time over the years trying to figure out the compromise between the left and the right. Um, my personal feeling is that this left-right paradigm is, is so responsible for dividing the people, uh, and it's essentially the most powerful divide-and-conquer tool uh, that the upper classes use against the lower classes. And over the course of the last year or so, uh, more and more I've just wanted to start really promoting uh, the libertarian perspective because I feel like actually libertarian philosophy harmonizes the left and the right. I've done a lot of research into this, uh, decades worth of research actually. I, I understand uh, the socialist communist perspectives and ultimately have come to the conclusion that libertarianism harmonizes uh, the left-right paradigm. It's not in conflict uh, with those who want to live communal lifestyles uh, that have more uh, attraction to left-wing ideas. Uh, conversely, the left is constantly fighting uh, with libertarians about uh, their preferred lifestyle if they want to uh, rent a room or use a currency or... Uh, make personal choices based on free market solutions, uh, then the left wing has a problem with this. But uh, my personal left libertarianism uh, allows for uh, people that, that uh, feel strongly about living communal lifestyles, not using currency, not renting rooms, uh, living in communes and communal situations, uh, working for workers' cooperatives, uh, these are fine according to libertarian principles. Uh, so, I don't I don't see the conflict coming from the libertarian perspective. So I'm having more libertarians on to try to explain uh, how libertarianism doesn't prevent more left leaning people from living their lives as they choose. Um, and so I was happy to have Alu on. I'm going to have a few more libertarians on uh, over the course of the next couple months so we can take kind of a deeper dive into this. And I've been writing uh, on Substack at the Populist Papers so I can kind of dive into my own personal uh, experiences and ideas concerning all of this. Um, because I think it's actually really important that people become more open-minded to libertarianism as the solution, libertarians advocate across the board for the decentralization of power. So let's decentralize. Uh, and then we can make these sort of left-right choices at the local level. And uh, so I had Elliot on. I saw his book initially, uh, the Corona Fascism book, and I thought we were going to talk more and more about um, uh, 
about what's been going on for the last two years in terms of, frankly, uh, centralizing power in the hands of the federal government, using this crisis uh, as an excuse uh, to continue that trend that's been going on for so long. And then I saw that he was a really uh, active in promoting the secession movement in New Hampshire. So that kind of became the focus of the conversation. Um, it's interesting to me because in the book, he does do a great job of arguing in general for the ideas of liberty, but he also uh, kind of goes after a lot of the typical conservative notions of how are we going to get out of this? Can we get out of this through voting? Can we vote libertarians into Congress? And can they be effective uh, from the inside out? Or the constitutionalist argument where if only we could just, you know, maybe get libertarian judges who are going to make uh, rulings that are dependent or um, in line with the spirit, the initial spirit of the Constitution. And he just says, look, guys, we've been working on this for decades and decades, uh, and it's not happening. And I've found that people that are uh, attracted, as they get attracted to uh, these libertarian ideas, and they start thinking about how do we decentralize power, there's often this process. <laughs> and I myself went through this process until I ended up a full-blown voluntarist, much like uh, Elliot did. Um, so that part of the conversation was really interesting that he's able to, in his book, The Blueprint for Liberty, really kind of assess <clears throat> these kind of stages that people go through. Well, we can have this constitutional republic, that'll work. We can vote people in, we can have libertarian judges. Uh, and the voluntarist just kind of says, no, <laughs> you know, that hasn't worked. It probably won't work. The Constitution is what got us uh, into this in the first place. I've actually done interviews about the initial Articles of Confederation and the Anti-Federalists uh, back in the uh, 1780s and 1790s that were arguing that the Constitution was already giving too much power to the federal government. And lo and behold, it uh, turns out that maybe those guys were right uh, 250 years ago or so. So, <laughs> so it was interesting to have this conversation and interesting to bring up this notion of secession, which is also very controversial. I was telling Elliot that I grew up in Texas, where we've had a, a tradition because Texas has this history of being its own nation for about 10 years before it joined the United States after separating from Mexico. Uh, but it seems like New Hampshire has kind of taken up the mantle on that one, and they're really going through the process. So some interesting information, uh, worth it to go to libertyblock.com and check it out. The other thing that he brings up in the book, and I, and I did talk to him a little bit about this, is having conversations with your progressive friends about libertarian ideas, because this is something that has started to become frustrating to me. I've actually been diving into the psychology of things, because... Um, and I actually just had a conversation, uh, the interview that will be coming out uh, hopefully next week is about the Federal Reserve, uh, the movie. Uh, I interviewed the producer, director of this movie, the, the housing bubble, the big housing bubble, uh, and how the Federal Reserve creates these huge bubbles and these boom and bust cycles. Um, but we got into... <clears throat> why it is that, uh, how it is that libertarian ideas uh, are not ever really promoted and we can never really get into these ideas, typically the Austrian school of economics, which has always predicted these big housing bubbles. Uh, so difficult to talk to progressives about um, t getting into the meat 
of what Austrian economists say. And if so, if you're a progressive and you've been listening to, to this, uh, or if you're a libertarian and you're having conversations with progressives, I think because most libertarians know about Hegel and Marx and, and uh, Marxism and socialism and progressivism. I mean, we live in this world and it's ubiquitous. It's all over the place. We understand the arguments from the left. Um, but very few people in my experience from the left have ever really explored Austrian economics. I think there's a reason for that. I think the upper class doesn't want the bulk of people to know. Uh, how the Austrians think, because the Austrians believe in decentralizing power. Uh, they're libertarians, so we don't get taught about Austrian economics in high school, very rarely even at the university level, while uh, progressivism, Marxism, uh, all of these ideas about centralizing control um, are wildly popular and often funded. Uh, if you saw my last episode with Dwayne Hayes, often funded by the billionaire class themselves. I think it's a progressivism becomes a way to centralize the means of production. Uh, and though they claim it's for the people, uh, of course, the upper classes are the ones that are well politically connected and uh, ultimately the ones that get to take advantage uh, of the big government contracts once uh, the means of production have been centralized in the hands of the government. So um, just really a complicated situation that we find ourselves in. Um, one of the reasons why I've been going more libertarian is because with the coronavirus situation and the lockdowns and the mandates, I really noticed my progressive friends had uh, basically completely lost the notion that the individual has rights, that there should be a boundary between the individual uh, and, this, and state power. Um, and I think once that boundary is erased, once we uh, stop paying attention, and Alu uh, Elliott goes into this in the Blueprint for Liberty, I mean, he goes down uh, all of the rights granted to us, the individual rights in the Constitution, and how they've just been hammered. Uh, they're just being ignored. Nobody's doing anything about it. Nobody's standing up for this boundary between the individual and the state. And once that's eliminated, well, I think we're in for really dangerous territory. That's when you start talking about Nazi Germany or something like what happened uh, in the French Revolution when they busted out the guillotine. When the state believes that it has the right to simply control what everyone says and does, uh, and if you disagree, then you're wrong or even immoral, uh, then they are morally justified in imposing all sorts of, you know, uh, horrific uh, penalties and punishments on those who disagree with the government, and I, I'm afraid that we're going in this direction. So that's why I'm having more libertarians on, and I hope that in our conversations with progressives we can learn how to message these ideas in a way that they can really get it. I've been uh, just promoting this concept of decentralization, like let's decentralize into the community and then have the community have these debates about how they want to organize their education, their health care, and these other things. And again, libertarianism doesn't prevent anyone from organizing voluntarily in a com commune, uh, you know, providing universal health care, education for all. I've often wondered why all of the Democrats in the United States don't just create a, you know, socialist organization of the U.S. and everybody joins, they pay 10% of their income and they provide everything the Democratic Party wants and let the other people just live their lives the way they want to. I mean, there doesn't have to be a conflict here, uh, but there is. And so I'm trying to 
do my part to uh, interview more and more libertarians to spread the word that there doesn't have to be a conflict, that we can harmonize these two ways as long as people start to realize that individual choice, voluntarism, uh, is the way forward. We can do this in a nonviolent way. We can live nonviolently. We can have these different lifestyles without having to be in conflict. So, Hopefully that's the message that you got from this interview. I had a great conversation with Elliot. Again, you can find all of his stuff at www.thelibertyblock.com. Uh, www.libertyblock.com. He's got a lot of great articles up there. Uh, and you'll find his books there as well, The Blueprint for Liberty and Corona Fascism. They've, uh, they've got the arguments uh, laid out in book form. He's got a lot of books coming up. I was kind of excited. He's being very passionate and prolific about getting his point of view out. And we'll keep an eye out on this uh, secession movement in, in New Hampshire and see where it goes. I mean, at the very least, uh, hopefully it'll gain enough steam to kind of start to raise these questions. I mean, that's the important thing about having these conversations, just to raise the questions, get people thinking. There can be a different way. We don't have to just do what they tell us, you know? <laughs> so, hope you enjoyed this one, and of course, as always, you can find my stuff at www.theshiftnow.com, uh, and um, I've just started doing this blog. I'm trying to be consistent. I will be um, moving in the next couple weeks, so I don't know if I'm going to get a new article out, but uh, you can find that at the Populist Papers on Substack, uh, and the link is at theshiftnow.com on the homepage if you want to just uh, get there that way. Um, and I'm starting to really kind of explore some of these deeper ideas about how why libertarianism harmonizes the left and the right, and how actually the progressive movement, uh, I don't think it's very healthy. I think at the end of the day it's been funded by the upper classes, and I think the psychology of it, uh, the fact that we can't, uh, we can't get along no matter how hard we try with people who think in that way, that there's something, something deeper going on there, some mythology, some psychology, some archetypes. I call it the patriarchal archetype, and I'll get into the, these ideas uh, on the blog if you're interested. Uh, you can go there and sign up, and you'll get all those articles as they come out. Next week, I had a great conversation with uh, New York University professor Mark Crispin Miller. Uh, hopefully, that'll be coming out really soon. Um, and uh, that was a, a really w a excellent conversation with him about the propaganda uh, that influences us all so much and the trouble that he's gone in at his university because he, he's exposing the propaganda and asking his students to critically think, not telling them what to think, but asking them to be able to critically analyze the, the news and the media that they ingest. And uh, he's gotten in all sorts of trouble, which really brings into question what is academic freedom and does it even exist? So stay tuned for that one coming up next week uh, and hopefully... We'll see you all very soon. Thanks a lot for listening, and you guys have a great day. Take care.